0: Hello, friend. Thanks so much for downloading this podcast. And with all my heart, I hope you hear something that edifies, encourages, equip, enlightens, and then engages you in the marketplace of ideas. But before you go and before you listen, I want to take a quick moment and explain to you this month's truth tool. The book is called I Believe, A Concise Guide to the Essentials of the Christian Faith. You know, it's paramount as followers of Christ that we not only know what we believe, but why we believe it. So questions like heaven and hell, angels, the Trinity, all of these are foundational issues for believing Christians, but sometimes we don't fully understand what it is we believe about Christianity. So the book, I believe a concise guide to the essentials of the Christian faith is just that it's concise and it's a wonderful guide to explain to you the cornerstones of who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. It's yours for a gift of any amount, because In the Market with Janet Parshall is a listener-supported broadcast. We stay on the air because you pray and give. So if you'd like this month's truth rule, just call 877-Janet-58. Ask for a copy of I Believe. That's 877-Janet-58, or you can go online to In org. Scroll to the bottom of the page, there's the cover of the book. If a gift of any amount, we'll send it to you as our way of saying thank you. While you're on that website, you might want to take a moment, scroll down just a little bit farther, and there's a description of what it means to be a partial partner. These are people who give at a level of their own choosing, and they give every month. They get the truth tool if they ask for it every single month. And they'll also get a newsletter. Only people that do that includes an audio portion that only goes to my partial partners. So if you want to be a partial partner or you're just interested in giving one time to get a copy of, I believe eight seven seven Janet 58 is the route to go eight seven seven Janet 58 or online at in the market with Janet I I believe a great book for you to put in your backpack as you continue your Pilgrim's progress. Now, Please enjoy the podcast.
1: Here are some of the news headlines we're watching.
2: By time the conference was over, the president won a play. So,
3: Americans
1: worshiping government over God.
3: Extremely rare safety move by a nation.
1: 17 years the Palestinians and Israelis negotiated not.
0: friends, welcome to In the Market with Janet Parshall, a very happy Thursday to you. I want to start with some good news. You know, Craig and I yesterday did our retrospective on the year 2023, and here's a story we didn't get to fold in, but I think it's a good news story, and boy, when I find good news, I love to shout it from the rooftop. So Youth for Christ is reporting the salvations of nearly 8,000 young people as God moved in a powerful way through that ministry last year. Youth for Christ recently released the U.S. organization's ministry report for 22-23, detailing several milestones, including a 20% average increase across all of its ministry sites and 7,855 kids coming to know Christ. Now, here's a quote from the Youth for Christ president and CEO, Jacob Bland. The 20% increase is across all our ministry metrics when average. This means that across our 120 ministry sites in the U.S., more kids are sharing their name with a YFC leader, engaging in Christ-centered relationships, making a decision to follow Christ, and plugging into discipleship. Now, if you don't know anything about Youth for Christ, some of us do. They've been involved in youth outreach for almost 80 years. It's a Christian movement with more than 130 chapters all across the country, helping 11 through 19-year-olds uncover God's story of hope in their own story through authentic relationships, shared experiences, outdoor adventure, mentoring small groups, and more. It's partners with local churches and other like-minded organizations, uh, is to raise up lifelong followers of Jesus, and they want their leaders to lead by example. So, uh, interesting, from holding rallies with Billy Graham in the 1940s, that's why I say, remember, they've been around for almost 80 years, to entering campuses to reach students in the 1960s, which was a interesting time to show up on a campus, by the way, to now empowering community leaders to build meaningful relationships with young people everywhere, It's our aim to walk with young people through their story and to be the friend and mentor that we've longed for ourselves. That's according to their website. And uh, I'm just pleased to give credit where credit is due. This has been a faithful ministry for, as I say, 79 years, close to 80. And to see those kinds of numbers and the outreach and the efficacy of the way in which they're dealing with young people, all praise, honor, and glory to the Lord. And not only that, but when you lose heart sometimes, when you think about the upcoming generations, don't be. The gospel still changes everything today, whether you're 19 or 90 And we praise God for those organizations that have remained faithful and steadfast in holding on to that which is good and holding out the word of life. And Youth for Christ has certainly done that. All right, back to the muck, the mire, and the mess that is the world. So in case you didn't hear about it, and we've talked about it because it's tied into anti-Semitism, and when three Ivy League school presidents came to testify on Capitol Hill, we played the audio for you, and we pointed out that this is, at its core, a spiritual issue. Well, The news broke yesterday, but I want you to hear this report from CBN News that the president of Harvard, the former president, is now just that, former. Have a listen.
3: Claudine Gay's problems began with what many called her terrible performance before Congress over her response to reports of alarming antisemitism on campus and refusal to condemn calls for genocide of Jews. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules of bullying and harassment, yes or no? It can be, depending on the context. What's the context? Targeted at an individual. It's targeted at Jewish students, Jewish individuals. Do you understand your testimony is dehumanizing them? Afterwards, Gay apologized for what she called poor wording in her testimony. Still, many House members, as well as prominent alumni and donors, called for her resignation and adding to her problems multiple allegations of plagiarism in her published works, including new charges Monday from the Washington Free Beacon. Gay said she resigned so that our community can navigate this moment of extraordinary challenge with a focus on the institution rather than any individual. Gay's testimony before Congress in December came after students at top campuses, including Harvard, said they didn't feel safe after outbreaks of anti-Semitism following the Hamas attacks on Israel. Some students spoke out on the day Gay and other university presidents testified before Congress. I want to be clear. This is not just about the Middle East. This is
1: anti-Semitism right here in our homes, on our campuses. It is dangerous. It is going unchecked. And everyone that does not join to put a stop to it is
0: part of the problem.
3: Still, not everyone on Harvard's campus is happy to see Gay go. I think she was trying to give a, a fair picture uh, when she uh, spoke in front of the congressional people. and. I think that uh, people kind of misconstrued what she was saying. While many leaders welcome Gay's resignation, they say the problems at leading universities go much deeper than just the leaders. They argue the schools have been engulfed by left-wing ideology. North Carolina Republican Congresswoman Virginia Fox says there has been a hostile takeover of post-secondary education by political activists, woke faculty, and partisan administrators. Critics will be watching top schools to see if there are any real changes. Wendy Griffith, CBN News.
0: Well, the controversy surrounding Harvard isn't over just yet because, as we've often said, money doesn't talk, it shouts. So now it takes us to Harvard's corporate senior fellow, a woman by the name of Penny Pritzker. She's going to stay in her position, for now at least, resisting calls to arrest, that according to a Harvard spokesperson. Pritzker's position gives her the greatest single say over the selection of Harvard's next president, a position she does not appear ready to give up, that according to the Harvard Crimson. Calls for her to resign have risen following the resignation of President Gay after a disastrous congressional testimony clips of which you just heard talking about anti-Semitism, quote, in context, and of course, increased scrutiny over allegations of plagiarism. So Prisker was elected to the board in 2018 and given her current senior fellow position in 2022, going on to lead the presidential search for gay. So some people are saying where does the buck stop, with the president or the people who selected her to be president? Her retaining of the position suggests that she will lead the search now for Harvard's 31st president as well. So given her refusal to resign, she's now likely to face scrutiny regarding the transparency of the presidential search project. Gay was expected to hold a position for a decade, but instead she's gotten the record now for the shortest term in the position of Harvard of president. By the way, calls for her resignation are coming from multiple corners of academia. And if the listeners in Illinois think that last name is familiar, yes, she is the sister of Governor Pritzker in Illinois. Back after this. Heaven, hell, angels, the Trinity, all of these are foundational issues for believing Christians. But do you understand what you believe? That's why I've chosen I Believe, a concise guide to the essentials of the Christian faith, as this month's truth tool. Know what you believe and why you believe it. Ask for your copy of I Believe when you give a gift of any amount to In the Market. Call 877 Janet 58, that's 877 Janet 58, or go to In the Market with Janet Partial.org. So I'm sure you've heard the saying that God puts his people everywhere. Just stop and ponder that for a moment. What if he didn't? What if there were no Christian influence in government or education or business or entertainment for that matter? Just think what it would be like if people who represent the light of the world were taken out. Those would be pretty dark areas. Now, we know that we live in a sin sick, fallen world, but the people who live in darkness can see a great light, and they can see that through the power of the gospel lived out in people's lives through authentic Christianity. I am so personally grateful, and I say this regularly because it's very true. I, like so many of you, wanted to pick up a brick and throw it at my television more often than not, when you realize how entertainment is about a worldview. Our dear friend Karen Cavell has taught us that, Yet, yeah, it's not just about money. Certainly, the entertainment world is very much about finance, but it's also about advocation of a particular worldview. And as Karen has taught us over the years, very often that advocating even supersedes the desire to be financially successful. Well, where does the worldview begin? I mean, this is just basic apologetics. This is the position in your heart is the grid through which you push through all of your major decisions and how you see life. If you've not had an encounter with Jesus, you have scales on your eyes. You're not able to see the world with clarity and with focus. That's what happens when you come to Christ. Your heart is transformed. Your mind is renewed and your vision will never be the same again. So what Karen has done gracefully, gently, consistently for years is encouraged us to look at Hollywood and the largest group of influencers in the world. And I love to say this, because here I am in the East Coast. There's Karen on the West Coast. You'd think the great influencers are the ones that grab the headlines on the news 24-7. No, it's not. They're far outdistanced by the influencers that live in her part of the country, which is Hollywood. So Karen has taught us, don't look at this as Sodom and Gomorrah. And yes, I will grant you that very often the stuff that comes out of there is more a representative of those destroyed cities than it is any other city referred to in the Bible. But Karen views it a different way, a winsome way. She views them as people who are residents of Nineveh. And if you've read that precious book called Jonah, you realize from the top down there was revival in that country. Even though there was a peevish prophet who was given the directive to bring the good news, he did nonetheless, and revival broke out. Just think, what would Hollywood be like if revival broke out? Karen Cavell is the founding director of the Hollywood Prayer Network. She speaks on this issue all across the globe, quite frankly. She has credentials. I I don't think, by the way, that you could have this as your mission field unless you could say that you understand what it's like to have, oh, I don't know, an independent TV and music production company. That if you were, in fact, part of the Producers Guild of America That if you weren't a board member on a university that dealt with entertainment, you have to have all those credentials. It's the ethos as well as the pathos, and she has that. But most importantly, I love her because of her heart, her heart for people, and she loves people because she loves Jesus. She puts out a fabulous newsletter every month called The Call Sheet. If you know anything about how films are made, it's the people who have to show up on the set that day. It's an arduous task, by the way, to make a film. So it's hurry up and shoot a scene, and if you're not in it, you don't have to show up that day. But it's a very winsome title. Because you and I are called basically to show up, (laughs) to be on set to pray for these people on a regular basis. And what I love about the call sheet is that it's wide, it's varied, it's insightful. It teaches me to pray for people who already know Jesus and people of great position who don't yet know Jesus but need to be prayed for. And I think last month's example was no exception whatsoever. Happy New Year to you, Karen. Thank you so much for joining me. What a great way to start out 2024.
2: Oh, I'm so excited to say Happy New Year to you, too. It is so great to be here, and I am your biggest fan. I am I am the Janet Partial in the Marketplace director of the fan club in Los Angeles. I thank
0: you, madam, for that. <laughs> so many things I want to talk about. So many things I want to talk about. First of all, do you know how TMC, as an example, puts on an in-memoriam? Time magazine puts out an in-memoriam. All of these great names associated, art direction, movie direction, composers, actors, screenwriters that have stepped into eternity. And I'm always surprised, as I think most of us are when we see these in memoriams that come at the end of the year. Oh, I didn't. Oh, I did Oh, I didn't realize. But for the believer, how many of us watch those going, I hope they knew Christ. I hope they knew Christ. I hope they knew Christ. It changes our perspective on this tremendously, does it not?
2: Oh, it does, and the fact is, it reminds us, the people who have impacted our lives, touched our hearts, you know, moved us, are we praying for them? Mm -hmm. Are they people that we get to spend eternity with? And I think sometimes we don't think about it until the in-memoriam comes out, you know? Yeah, I
0: couldn't agree more. And uh, it was just a thought I had about why we need to be praying now while we can. And those in memoriam served as a reminder of why. I couldn't wait to talk to you today. I want to talk about so many things. First of all, talk to me. I've seen so much buzz on the film The Shift. Tell me about this.
2: Well, we went and saw it, and it's a, it's the first of its genre for a Christian film to be a dystopian story. Um, It's, it's an interesting film. It just shows us how we're stretching the the area of faith-based films to touch things that we may not otherwise have thought about. You always think of the Christian films as the one who kind of have the sermon and the person becomes a Christian at the end. Right. But to put it in a dystopian setting, to make a horror film, to do a ninja film, you know, I think it's nice to see Christians reaching out in different genres with our faith. And so that's why I wanted to let people know to think about there are There's a lot of different ways that we can stretch as Christian filmmakers.
0: Yeah, I absolutely agree. So I must ask you, particularly given you and your curriculum vitae, what is it about the genre of dystopian films that people find so attractive? I mean there's a gazillion in fact I actually I delivered an address in an apologetics conference recently and I was talking about Hollywood's thinking about the end. And I went from nineteen ninety to twenty twenty two and the market uptick of films that had been created that deal with with a dystopian theme. What is so attractive about that that makes it so successful for a filmmaker?
2: Oh, my gosh, I'm so glad you asked because I just had a long conversation with my husband about this at Christmas. It's because we were meant for heaven. Mm. We, are, we are wired by the God of the universe who created us to long for him, to long for heaven. We are, the dystopian films are just like the graphic novels of superheroes. We want something bigger than us. We want something outside of our material realm of the earth, and we're drawn to it without even understanding why.
1: Yeah,
0: I think that is a brilliant observation on your part. And the only Bible verse I can think of when you were talking is, he's placed eternity in our heart. We were made for another country. I'm so glad we're talking with Karen Cavell. She is the founding director of the Hollywood Prayer Network. Please sign up, become a part of this praying global body for the greatest group of influencers in the world. Back after this. What a joy to talk to Karen Cavell, founding director of the Hollywood Prayer Network, again. Let me encourage you to sign up to get the call sheet so on a regular basis you can join this global community that's praying for Hollywood. So some people in our audience will know who Daddy Yankee is. Others will not. Explain why you included him in your last call sheet.
2: Yes. Well, Daddy Yankee, he is a a Latin superstar, and he is he went on a tour of, a, of his final, it's a farewell tour with a concert in Puerto Rico, and he ended the whole concert with a Bible verse. What good will it be for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? He spoke out about his faith in Jesus so widely all across every audience he went to and felt like this is how he wanted to end his his, his touring career. And we put him in as an example of people who love Jesus to the point where they don't care what people think, they just want to glorify him. And this is a respected musician. It's exciting to see somebody that just says, you know what, the most important thing is what I want people to know about. So we're celebrating him.
0: Yeah, that's fabulous. Absolutely fabulous. In that same vein, tell our friends who Zachary Levi is.
2: Oh, he's a good friend. We love Zach Levi. He started out with the wonderful TV show Chuck and went on to do much other television, then became the star of the fun kid superhero movie Shazam and now just did a wonderful Christmas movie called Teddy's Christmas. Uh, He did the wonderful voice of the main character, the Teddy, and he is a believer who is such a dear man. He really cares about the people around him, the image that he has for his fans, for his heart to reach out to others. I mean, he's just a special believer who I want to be more of an inspiration to people who, who know that, yes, you can be an actor, you can even be a celebrity, and you can be a good person and love Jesus.
0: Wow. I'm going to ask this question only because the last time we were together, we talked about the rise of anti-Semitism in, of all places, Hollywood, which is unbelievable for me. But with a name like Zachary Levi, does he would he categorize himself as a Messianic believer?
2: He doesn't. He doesn't. I don't know his background that way. I think it's on his father's side, not his mother's size, and ah. side. side and so that makes you not that changes as officially it. <laughs> Jewish. Yes. That's exactly
0: right. <laughs> That's exactly right. I understand that completely. You also talked about <laughs> the fact that Liam Nielsen now, and I remember watching, um, uh, oh, why am I blanking on his name? Wahlberg talking about this prayer oh, app Wahlberg. that was, yes. yes, Mark Wahlberg using this yes. prayer app. Now Liam Nielsen is talking about the same prayer app. Talk to me about this.
2: Yes, well, he was also on with Jonathan Rumi and Mark Wahlberg. All these people are getting on this amazing prayer app. And Liam Neeson said he wanted to talk about God. So he got on, and he got on with these others, and he was really open about his conversation, his feelings, his meditation to God. It's just, it was just surprising that somebody of his stature and his experience and his celebrity is also somebody who says, You know what? That wasn't enough. God is what fills me up.
0: Wow, wow, that's fascinating. I'm going through these quickly, only in deference for time, but now anybody who's following The Chosen knows that, yes, they're in the next round of uh, uh, chapters of this series as well. But you've put together a Chosen prayer team. Talk to me about this.
2: Well, and it's even expanded since then, Janet. So now wow. we have a, a prayer team for The Chosen in English that is run by a wonderful pastor in Texas who's who's around the area where The Chosen um, shoots their their series. And he has a Saturday morning prayer call with people all around the world who are moved by this show, want to see it stay successful, and want people's hearts touched by it. So they pray every Saturday morning on Zoom. And anybody's welcome to join them. And then we have a new chapter director in Buenos Aires, who is doing a weekly prayer call in Spanish for the Chosen. And she is leading that. And if anybody wants to pray weekly for the Chosen in Spanish, we have our, our Buenos Aires local chapter director leading that one. And it's people who are moved by this show and want others to find it and be touched by it as well.
0: Wow, amazing. Again, if you've got the call sheet, you can sign up. This is your connectedness. I've also got a link to the website, so start there because you can go back to the archived newsletters as well. Um, brand new year. You're fighting for joy. Talk to me about this prayer and fasting for 2024.
2: Oh, yes. We want to start the year with a focus on prayer. We want to really say this is where we want our hearts and our minds to be focused on Jesus so we are doing a fasting and prayer time. People in entertainment industry, through the Hollywood Prayer Network, we started January 1st. People can fast one day a week, they can fast every day, they can fast food, they can fast media, they can fast anything that distracts them from spending more time with God. And lifting up this 21 days, not only to get our own hearts right with God, but to really say we want to see a change in arts and entertainment and media and journalism and video games and music. And so we're going to take these first 21 days and lay a strong foundation for the year.
0: Wow. And not too late for people to join that as well, which is important. Never. Good. Excellent. Talk to me. And I thought this was a fascinating bit of history because you and I've talked about how the origination of the Hollywood sign started. But this is the 100th anniversary of that sign. Talk to me about this
2: it's really interesting, and I found some um, confusing information about it. Some are celebrating it that's the 100th year of the actual sign. Others are celebrating it's the 100th year on that day of the sign being lit so that all the city could see it. But the fact is, this year represents that that Hollywood sign, starting as Hollywood land and then breaking off and becoming Hollywood, the iconic sign has been up for 100 years. And so we're celebrating the history of this iconic sign.
0: City. Wow. And a reminder to pray for that group of influencers as well. Karen, that time just flew by. Let me take this opportunity to remind my listeners we skated over the top. There's so much more in the newsletter as well. And there are all kinds of wonderful ways in which you can be a part of this global praying community. So, check it out at our website, in the market with Janet Partial.org. Click on the link to the Hollywood Prayer Network and become a part of the group that's praying for these influencers. Lord's blessings to you and Jim in 2024, Karen. Back after this. the goal of In the Market? I'll tell you. In the Market equips men and women to think critically and act biblically. Why do we do this? So that we can be confident when speaking the truth in a confused culture. Are you willing to stand with me? Become a partial partner today and enjoy exclusive benefits only my partners receive while making an impact for the kingdom. Call 877 Janet 58 or go online to In the Market with Janet Partial.org. We're going to spend time talking now with Wesley Smith, who's the chair and senior fellow at the Discovery Institute Center on Human Exceptionalism. I know he humbly says he didn't put those two words together and lay claim to them as a trademark, but I'll tell you what, he's given depth and width and breadth of meaning to that, particularly for people who understand that there is a hierarchy in God's creation, that in all of creation, we are the only part made in his image, and we are the only part of God's creation that has the opportunity to step into a personal relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. So there is an exceptional aspect. So when man... And in his fallen state, continues to try to juxtapose or gives a create an alienation of affection, superimposes our love for the Creator with the created, as scripture says, uh, therein lies chaos. And we see this all around us. But what Wesley does is with a very rapier-whipped and a pointed pen. He leads us to clarity of thought on so many of these hugely important issues dealing with bioethics. We have a long list of things I want to talk about. I'm going to run out of time before I get to them. He spits them out faster than a pitching machine in a baseball cage. But i got to tell you, Wesley, I'm going to throw a curveball at you, but you're going to handle this one standing. But because it just happened today, I would be remiss given all of the work that you've done against the Hemlock Society when it was called that, against death on demand and mercy killings and all of the other euphemisms that we come up for where we have turned our back on the reality of the preciousness of every life. So now today we have a Connecticut woman who just this morning was the first non-resident of Vermont, a state that allows this, quote, assisted suicide stuff was granted the ability to use the state's medical aid in dying law. She was 76 years old, uh, and she had cancer, and she, again, has now stepped into eternity. Vermont is not the only state. California, Colorado, Hawaii, Montana, Maine, New Jersey, New Mexico, Oregon, and Washington, D.C. Uh, Washington State as well as Washington, D.C. now all have this and there were years, it's hard to think about this, Wesley, when there was no manifestation of this in any of the 50 states. And now, like an opportunistic virus, it's spreading across the country. Give me your take on what happened in Vermont today.
1: Well, it's not surprising. And Happy New Year. You too, as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> A little ironic there. Yes. Uh, um, the, the assisted suicide movement in this country uh, is uh, culturally imperialistic. Mm-hmm. And so what they do is they, they uh, you know, say, oh, it's just a, a, a little tiny, itsy-bitsy, itsy little tiny bit of safety valve for people for whom nothing else can be done to eliminate suffering. Well, of course, the laws don't say that. And uh, the uh, ambition of the assisted suicide movement eventually is death on demand. But they know that the United States is not quite ready for that, so they say, well, it's just for the terminally ill. And we'll have strict guidelines to protect against abuse. For example, you have to be a resident of the state. Well, as soon as uh, they can uh, loosen that, they do. So both Oregon and Vermont did away with residency requirements. and And so they want to be able to become kind of like Switzerland. Switzerland has suicide clinics. Hmm. from, uh, to where, uh, for, to which people from around the world fly, perhaps in business class, perhaps in coach, and then fly home in the hold, uh, in a coffin. Um, so basically Oregon and Vermont, uh, aspire to be the Switzerland of the United States. They also uh, allow te- uh, assisted suicide by telemedicine, meaning you can do the interview with the death doctor, uh, by, um, internet and, uh, like, uh, Skype or, uh, uh, one of the other services, streaming services. So they're going to be as liberal as they think they can get away with realizing they're still trying to convince the rest of the country to swallow the hemlock. So mm. they, they kind of hold themselves a little bit in check. Um, United States is basically one of the only places where terminal illness, quote unquote, is a requirement. Um, Uh, But once a society readily accepts euthanasia or assisted suicide, you become like Canada— Netherlands and Belgium, where not only do terminally ill people, but chronically ill people, disabled people, frail elderly people, mentally ill people, children, infants with born with serious disabilities, and so forth, that's in the Netherlands under the uh, Groningen Protocol. So the idea uh, eventually ends up where Germany is, where the uh, highest court in Germany uh, issued a ruling a couple of years ago that says there's a fundamental constitutional right to commit suicide. For any reason and for any purpose, you don't have to have a health issue. And to be assisted in suicide, and there's an ancillary constitutional right to assist in suicide. Death on demand is the ultimate goal here. When they pretend otherwise, it's to get people to swallow the hemlock, but that's where we're at.
0: Wow, unbelievable. You know, she actually sued, the woman who ended her life today, actually sued to get rid of this residency clause. I see a parallel to abortion here that we're now going to say that Uh, You know, if this state outlaws abortion, then you can go to this one instead to get your abortion. What I find interesting also is that, and I know it's an older poll, and you and I watched these things. It was 2018. But at that point in time, Gallup found that only 54% of Americans believed that it was morally acceptable. From your saged position, do you think that that number's increased?
1: Oh, I know it has because I've seen later polls. I don't have the number off the top of my head. But the, look at the media. They constantly push it as death on your terms, mm-hmm. or she died in the way she wanted, or this is death with dignity, as if dying naturally isn't a dignified death. Um, uh, it, it's it's really bad, and um, in in Oregon. Uh, this is it. it started. Uh, it got legalized in a, an election in 1994, which is a was run by as a scurrilous anti-Catholic campaign. They had radio ads, for example, saying, "Pope, keep your hands off my body." Um, but th- there is no a limiting principle to this because if the purpose of assisted suicide is to ameliorate or eliminate suffering by eliminating the sufferer, right? <laughs> then a lot of people suffer far more than people with terminal illnesses. Uh, People with long-term disabilities uh, may suffer more. I've met people who have lived through terrible, excruciating back pain for decades, and they suffer more. People with mental illnesses may suffer more, and that's why in the Netherlands, Belgium, and soon Canada, this year Canada, uh, uh, mentally ill people can be euthanized. And basically... Then they can join um, euthanasia with organ harvesting because, good grief, if they're going to die, we might as well get something beneficial from them as a plum to society. And of course, none of these people are offered suicide prevention. Uh, you're basically creating a disposable cast of people.
0: Mm. Wow, unbelievable. Thank you. As I noted, uh, you did that beautifully without my asking you ahead of time to discuss this one, but thank you for that. Let me, if I may, because again, your pieces have been superb, and I want to talk about one in particular that we could, if we wanted, to spend the rest of our time together to talk about. So you note that Pete Singer along with some other co-authors, put together a book published by Princeton University Press last year called Ethics in the Real World, 90 Essays on Things That Matter. This didn't slip past you. Explain to our friends why you categorize Pete Singer as one of the most villainous thinkers of our
1: age. I kind of like that, Turner. I did, too. (laughs) When I wrote it, I said, oh, I like that. (laughs) I wrote, Princeton, by what this is, Peter Singer is one of the most villainous thinkers of our age. Alas, he is also one of the uh, most influential. Mm-hmm. That's the second part. And that's the real sad part. Peter Singer is an Australian. Uh, they, he calls himself a moral philosopher. In his case, in my view, it's an oxymoron. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is an immoral philosopher. He's a utilitarian. He believes that uh, there's no such thing as rights, that human life has no intrinsic value just because it's human that the point is to uh, eliminate suffering and maximize happiness. And uh, he also uh, um, is famous for uh, kind of jump-starting the animal liberation movement, uh, in which he took utilitarianism is always basically focused on hum- humans. Uh, there was a fellow named Joseph Fletcher, mm-hmm. uh, who is one of the founders of the bioethics movement. He may, Some call him the patriarch. Uh, And he was a a raging utilitarian, but he focused always on humans. Peter Singer, I call him the son of Fletcher, um, he expanded the utilitarian concept to animals. And so basically, it doesn't matter whether a human, an animal, or a vegetable— His utilitarian views say that the uh, utilitarian measurements should be the same. And and in utilitarianism, there's no such thing as human rights. And so he believes that um, because a monkey or a chimpanzee has greater cognitive capacities than, let's say, Terry Schiavo, that somebody like—he didn't use her name, but Mm -hmm. he he used the example of a person in that kind of cognitive disability— uh, that they should have been used in animal experimentation instead of the primates. Uh, and he was very specific about that. So that's that's truly evil. His second uh, call to fame, or infamy in my view, is he's the world's foremost proponent of the propriety of infanticide. Mm. And he says because uh, a baby is not, quote, a person, close quote, in that they are not yet self-aware over time, or they're not yet able to value their own lives— Then killing the baby, if that suits the parents, or if the baby would have a suffering life, is perfectly acceptable. So this is where Peter Singer um, made his, you know, uh, academic chops. And the interesting thing, he was brought to Princeton University in one of the most prestigious chairs in bioethics in the world because of these views, not in spite of them.
0: Wow. That says volumes, doesn't it? So much. There's too much in this article that you did in the review of his book that I want to come back and pick up on this if I can. You've got, again, a gazillion articles out there that are all fabulous, all worth discussing. But I think this was a seminal piece because you really took him to task and I think did an illustrative job of pointing out that ideas have consequences and bad ideas have deadly consequences. Back after this. our conversations with Wesley Smith he really does get us thinking critically and biblically. He wears many hats. He is the chair and senior fellow at the Discovery Institute Center on Human Exceptionalism, a contributor to National Review and the author of over 14 books. So let me go back to this piece that you penned uh taking a look at in fact it was a review of a book that Peter Singer had written called Ethics in the Real World: 90 Essays on Things that Matter. So let me go so that our friends can begin to think critically. If he's a utilitarian, and I think it's an aberrant uh, philosophy myself, where do you draw the line? So here he is. You said his second bit of infamy, correct word on your choice, by the way, is his advancement of infanticide. This idea that after a child is born, you should have a certain period of time to decide whether it lives or die. And he started out at one year, and I understand he's up to, to now multiple years, and that's a demonic worldview, simply stated from my perspective. But if you're a utilitarian, when it comes to these ethics issues— which in his case I think is a lack of ethics. And he talks about infanticide and the ability to eradicate the life of a child. Um, Where do you draw the line? So now you have somebody who's born into this world and their intellectual development is compromised in some way, or you have a case of a Terry Schiavo, or you have someone who has had a brain injury that leaves them different than they were before. If you're going to be utilitarian in your approach toward this, this is Genesis chapter three. We shall be like gods. You get to decide that this person no longer has any value and worth. And how in the name of all that is common sense, decency, and good, can you say it's more utilitarian to eliminate that person? What is your stated goal? Utopia?
1: Well, that's the, I think uh, the greatest evil in the world is utopianism. Right. Uh, and it is the idea that we can create paradise on earth and therefore, the means justify the, or the ends justify the means, or the means justify the ends. The problem is that the means become the ends.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: uh, if you you look at any uh, uh, terrible genocide or uh, human rights abuses uh, in the history of the world, starting perhaps with the French Revolution, or even going back to uh, the Inquisition, it's utopianism. It's not particular religion or philosophy. It's utopianism. Uh, and also today we've got a problem with people feeling instead of thinking and so uh people like peter singer who who he's very successful because janet i don't know if you've ever seen him interviewed or read his stuff he he has a very mm-hmm. charming australian mm-hmm. accent mm-hmm. he talks in passive ways he asks instead of saying we should kill he says what what why shouldn't we uh, why shouldn't this be done you know this kind of thing um, and he uh, he uses things like uh, in one of his pro infanticide articles, he said uh, we should be parents should be able to uh, start over. Well, you know mm-hmm. what he means is kill the baby. Exactly. And then f- get another one. Uh, so so that's that's Peter Singer. And he, and the unfortunate thing is, is I think he is very successful. He's probably the world's most influential philosopher. Uh, he's certainly the New York Times's favorite philosopher. He's frequently quoted. Often writes op-eds. Uh, the columnist Nicholas Kristof swoons at his feet. <clears throat> but um, it's it's. Because I think he reflects the zeitgeist of our times. We have lost the concept of human exceptionalism. We have lost or are losing it, or it's being stripped from us, the idea that being human matters simply and merely because we're human. We are attacking and um, uh, losing the ability to defend universal human rights. If you're going to have universal human rights, then human life has to be an objective, intrinsic good. Because if you have to earn your value by having, say, mental capacities or perhaps physical capacities, then no one is ultimately safe, because today you might, in Peter Singer's uh, uh, lexicon, be deemed a person because of your uh, mental abilities. But tomorrow, as you said, you might be in an auto accident and lose those abilities, and suddenly your life could be forfeit. Or you could even be used in human experimentation, as Singer has proposed. Mm -hmm. Or you could be strip-mined for your organs, as utilitarians might propose, as we've seen in the euthanasia issue. So the whole idea of treating human beings as having intrinsic dignity, equal inherent moral worth, universal human rights, is stripped bare and corroded and collapses under this kind of thinking. And people who turn to Peter Singer, well, he believes in altruism and giving away, you know, uh, um, your excess money. Fine, that's nice. He's against the war in Ukraine. Well, who isn't? Nice, but nice. if you look at his ultimate values, he is destructive to human worth, and he is a an insidious and subversive thinker. And the problem is not that he espouses these views, but that so many of the influential leaders of our public policies and institutions accept them.
0: Oh, that, that Again, that's stunning, and that's the greater evil, I think, in all of this. But let me point something out. So if he's a man who becomes the patron saint of animal liberation, you write that years ago he wrote a piece um, talking about the moral propriety of bestiality. How does that work yes. if you're into animal liberation?
1: Well, <laughs> well, Peter Singer wants to uh, destroy human exceptionalism. And animal liberation, by the way, isn't the same thing as animal rights, because he favors using animals in research if they have uh, to help. For example, he once said he favored using monkeys in research to help people with Parkinson's, because people with Parkinson's are persons, uh, they, they have higher moral capacities than monkeys, so it's okay to use the monkeys in the experimentation. The animal rights movement their heads exploded because that's not what they think, Mm. but he would have also said the same thing about Terry Schiavo or a newborn baby uh, and so forth. Um, In terms of bestiality, he just wants to say that there's nothing special about being human. So he wrote a book review of a uh, book that that supported bestiality and he basically said, why is everybody upset? It's just two animals rubbing body parts.
0: And that's what happens when you take God out of the equation and you fail to recognize human exceptionalism. This is why I love our conversations, Wesley. You really help us to think more deeply, more critically. And in the end, I think more biblically about these kinds of issues. Again, he's replaced his affection from the creator to the created, and the rest is moral chaos. But as you say, he's embraced at these higher level Uh, Ivy League schools, which the last time I checked were having problems. They didn't even recognize genocide, or excuse me, anti Semitism when it showed up. It had to be, quote, in context in order for it to be a problem. Thank you, Wesley. There are so many pieces that we could have talked about. I'm just grateful that you come and visit on a regular basis because we never, ever run out of things to talk about. Follow him at National Review, read his books. He's a, a very important, powerful voice in helping us to have reason, common sense, and advance the idea of human exceptionalism. My thanks to Wesley, but I thank you friends as well. We'll see you next time right here on the next edition of In the Market with Janet Parshall.